Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're opening your Bible, I want to describe to you my first two years in ministry. Um, I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs in the late 90s. And I went to a church that had a really bad history of being a dysfunctional church. Uh, Back in the 70s, two pastors were fired for having affairs with women in the church. Um, There was financial problems. Uh, Most pastors only stayed about a year or two because things were just that bad in that church. It just kind of had a reputation of being uh, just a dysfunctional church. In 1989, they fired their pastor in a very vindictive manner. And then in 1991, uh, Dr. Ron Clement became the pastor. And he's the one that I served under, who's my mentor, and he's actually preached in Emmanuel before as well. And so when Pastor Ron came to the church, he had to deal with just a lot of issues, a lot of dysfunctionality. In 1995, a group tried to take over the church and oust him uh, with a pastor that had come down from Denver that was starting to, go, to come to the church and was gathering people behind the scenes to basically have a mutiny. Uh, and so that finally got taken care of. And then I came to the church in 1998. And so I had to deal in my first couple years of ministry with just parents that didn't trust my leadership, just a lot of immaturity, a, a lot of dysfunctionality and disunity. And so we prayed for unity a lot. And during those days, we were getting ready to build a building. And in around the early 2000s, our pastor went into a period of extreme prayer and fasting. And during that time, Satan just began to attack the church. Uh, deacons began to turn on the pastor. And just when we thought uh, things were going to get better um, with the church... There, there always just seemed to be that nagging sense of disunity in the body. And so finally, we experienced a, a period of sustained health. We were finally at a period where things were unified. The church was growing. And then in 2002, Pastor Ron sensed a call to leave uh, the church we were at and to go on to another ministry. And so this was a shaky time because he had led the church for 10 years and had very strong biblical leadership. And so during this fragile time, we were wondering, you know, what's going to happen with the unity of the church? And guess what happened? The very next Sunday, I was supposed to preach because obviously he had left. I was a youth pastor. And that Sunday, one of the families that had caused me major problems walked into the sanctuary. And it was Lord's Supper Sunday. And the whole time I'm preaching, I'm just wondering, what in the world? Why did they show up? They had left the church under bad circumstances many years earlier. And just the first Sunday after Pastor Ron left, when I happened to be preaching, they show up. After the service, they come towards me, and I'm thinking, oh, great, what's going to happen? He stuck out his hand, and he said, would you please forgive me? We've treated you in an ungodly manner, and we're coming today to make it right. 
We'll never come back to this church to cause trouble. We just want to let you know that we apologize and would you please forgive us? And that was an amazing moment of of tears that I did forgive them. And so we prayed for unity because that church experienced a lot of disunity. Nothing can destroy a church more quickly than disunity. Chuck Swindoll, the famous pastor, said, you can be united without having unity. He says, tie two cats together by their tails and throw them over a clothesline. They may be united, but certainly not unified. Well, I'm thankful for the unity that God has given Emmanuel Baptist Church over the years. And during this COVID-19 pandemic, our unity as, as a church could have negatively been impacted. And so as we think about moving forward as a church, as we regather, as we begin to interact together in person as a church family, it's always a good reminder to find out what the Bible says about the unity and the importance of unity as a church family. So, if you have your Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. This is the Apostle Paul. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's a prisoner for the Lord. Most scholars believe he's probably in Rome when he's writing back to the church in Ephesus. So literally, he's in chains. He's a prisoner. But metaphorically, he has given his life to Christ, and he is a a servant or a prisoner to the Lord as giving his entire life to Jesus. And so he urges us. He gives us the strong exhortation, I urge you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, some translations say live. The actual Greek word there is walk. And all the rest, of the, the rest of the book of Ephesians, that word walk shows up. And so when the Bible talks about the word walk, it's talking about the totality of your lifestyle, the way you live. Basically what Paul's saying is your life, because you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, because that's a reality, your life should be different, should be markedly different. Your lifestyle should show evidence that you truly are saved by grace. And I would say this, if there's no evidence or there's no fruit demonstrating that you've been transformed by grace, then you may need to examine yourselves. And so Paul tells us back in Ephesians 2.10. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should 
walk in them. That same word walk. We are to walk in good works. Worthy manner. Walk in a manner worthy. That is an interesting word, picture in the original language. That, that word worthy means the balancing of scales. In other words, it's the old adage that your talk needs to match your walk and your walk needs to match your, your talk. They need, to, they need to balance up. Paul basically reiterates this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. In Ephesians, he says, let you walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Our calling to which we've been called. So what's the significance of our calling? Why are we to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? What have, we, what have we been called to? Well, in the book of Ephesians especially, Paul says we've been called to be the church. Go back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? We've been called to a hope. We have been saved by grace. We've been united as a church. We have a living hope. And so Paul says, because we have a living hope, because we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, because we've been called into a relationship with Christ and a relationship with one another, our lifestyle, the totality of how we live, is to be in a, a manner worthy of that calling. And so what does that look like? What is this walking in a manner worthy? And just a side note, we don't earn our salvation by being good to somehow earn God's approval. No, this is post-salvation. Because you've been transformed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit of God, you now live a lifestyle that demonstrates that change. Okay. So the question we ask is, what does it look like? What is Paul saying is, is a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called? Well, Paul mentions four ways that we do this, and then he grounds this in a theological statement about our identity in the Trinity. So, the primary ways we're to walk in a manner worthy are in verses 2 through 3. We see four of them. So here's the first. First, we walk in humility. Verse 2, with all humility. Humility. Now, this means to have a lowliness of mind. It doesn't mean that you walk around with bad self-esteem and that you're always down on yourself, but it, what it really means is that you're willing to put others before yourself. It's being humble. It's not fighting for your rights. It's willing to be a servant. And it's a hard thing to do. Because at the core of our being, we are selfish, we are prideful, we want the entire universe to revolve around us and our needs. We get inflated with pride. Dwayne read this earlier during our, our time of confession. Philippians 2, 3-4, Do nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, a lot of us struggle with a a besetting sin. There's there's just that one sin that we always struggle with. And and many years ago, I I had to come to grips with myself. And I did a word study on that word in, in, in Philippians, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. That's one of my root sins that I struggle with. I've struggled with it my whole life. What is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition basically means you always want to be right. You always want to be first. You're pretty much set in your ways, and you like to argue, and you like to debate, and you're pretty rigid in your ways. And so that is the exact opposite of humility. So think about God's grace for a moment. When you stop and you think about grace, there really should be no room for boasting in the Christian life. Think about grace for a moment. Just think about how God has treated you. Did God owe you anything but his justice? We all deserve condemnation. We all deserve hell. We all are children of wrath. And God chose to save us by grace alone. Do we see our brothers and sisters in Christ as those for whom Christ died? As those for whom... God showed grace. You see, the more you focus on God's grace towards you, the more you will begin to walk in humility and reflect God's grace to others. You know, one of the primary ways to crush pride in the life of a Christian is to repeatedly set your heart and mind on the cross. When you look at the cross and you see what Jesus suffered there for you who did not deserve it, it shatters all pride. It humbles us. Listen to John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, British theologian. Um, He died a few years ago, but he says this, Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. It's there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. So the first way we walk in a manner worthy of our calling is we walk in humility. We walk with humbleness, not in pride. The second aspect, or the second way we do this, is we walk in gentleness. You see that there in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness. Now, this is somewhat of a word that we're not that quite familiar with. It means an inner strength that is under control. Not lashing out in anger. Think about Jesus for a moment. What did Jesus say about himself? He's our ultimate model of gentleness. In Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 through 30, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was gentle. Now, does that mean that Jesus was a wimp? No, it just means that he had confidence. He had power. He had authority, but it was always under control. 
he was always able to respond with gentleness. You see, the opposite of gentleness is harshness. Trying to appeal to your rights. Always thinking you should have things your way. You're more, control, you're more concerned with being in control and having power than you are about God's will and God's glory. Let me speak to the men for just a moment. Men, sometimes we think of this word gentleness and, and, and we kind of struggle with it. It does not mean weakness. Gentleness does not mean weakness or you're a wimp. It doesn't mean that you're passive and, and you don't have a backbone and you're just a doormat and you let everybody walk over you. I want you to think about Moses for a moment. Remember all of our, our, our two, almost two years in the book of Exodus? He was one of the strongest leaders that ever lived. Moses was probably one of the strongest leaders that ever lived. If you had to lead two million people in the wilderness for 40 years, if you had to confront Pharaoh, if you had to deal with all the things that he dealt with, he was a man's man. He was a strong leader. And listen to what Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 says. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Meek is just another word for gentle. This word here, gentleness, some of you know this because you train horses. It's, it's used of training animals. It really means power under control. It, it means that you consciously exercise self-control, gentleness, as opposed to using your power or your authority for retaliation or for ungodly gains. So first we walk in humility. Second, we walk in gentleness. But what's the third? Okay, we walk in patience. Patience. I think the King James calls it long-suffering. That's really what the word means, prolonged restraint. It means you can go a long period of time without getting angry. You have a high threshold for coping when things don't go your way. You're knowing, you know that there's some things that you just can't change. There's some things that are out of your control, but you handle the situation with grace and with patience. Now, I don't play golf. I know some of you play golf. I hear that golf is a good way to stay humble and patient. So if you want to learn humility and patience, play golf. Uh, back in 2007, there was a woman named Elsie McLean, and she had played golf for many years. Actually, eight decades she played golf. And so on April 9th, 2017, in Chico, California, as a 102-year-old woman, she became the, the oldest golfer ever to make a hole-in-one on a regulation course, 102 years old. She later told reporters, for an old lady, I still hit the ball pretty good. Okay. 100 years she had to wait to hit a hole-in-one. Talk about patience when it comes to golf. Now, God calls us to be patient in situations, situational patience. But oftentimes where our patience is really tried is when it comes with other people, patience with other people. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Okay, how does Paul specifically tell us to be patient? So in the Greek text here, 
there's a, there's a phrase that's tied in with patience there at the end of verse 2. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. Enduring one another. Tolerating one another. Putting up with one another's foils and, and, and habits and idiosyncrasies. Being willing to, to get along with others in love. In love. Being willing to make allowances for other shortcomings. Not being overly irritated or judgmental or suspicious. I think right now there's a lot of suspicion of other people. There's a lot of judgmentalness. There's a lot of irritability. And part of it's been because for about eight weeks we've been cooped up in our homes. And a lot of it has to do with the media and social media and all these things coming together that sometimes we would rather lash out on a Facebook post and actually talk to a person face-to-face to understand exactly where they're coming from and try to be patient with them. The key word there being bearing with one another in love. In love. Okay, so we walk with humility, number one. Number two, we walk with gentleness. Number three, we walk with patience. And here's number four, we walk in unity. We walk in unity. This is in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity in the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager. Eager means to, to make an effort, to, to be intense about it. It's, it's of great importance. Paul's saying, hurry up and get excited and get zealous about what? Maintaining the unity of the Spirit. The key word there being maintaining. I don't know what other translations say, but that word means to preserve the unity, to keep the unity, to hold fast, to, to watch out. So here's something we need to understand. We as Christians don't manufacture or create or make unity. Okay, We don't establish unity. We don't organize it. Because of our union with Christ as Christians, that union with Christ that we have individually and the Holy Spirit living with us binds all of us together in unity because of who we are in Christ. So we don't create the unity, but we do have a responsibility to maintain it, to keep it, to make sure that it doesn't become disunified. And there's a, a urgency there. So I want you to think about how this all ties together. Unity is going to result... If we're being humble, unity is going to result if we're being gentle. And unity is going to result if we're being patient, bearing with one another in love. But notice the type of unity that Paul says it is. It's the unity of the Holy Spirit. Is Paul just talking about a group of people that are connected by a common cause or united around a purpose, okay? So there's a lot of people that can be united. I mean, we have the United States of America. People can be united around a political cause or united around a, a community um, action. So, so there's kind of a secular or a worldly type of unity that people seek, but this is not what Paul's saying here. This is very specific. This is unity that is created by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. It's a spiritual unity. 
Because the Holy Spirit lives in each one of us. And because he lives in each one of us and he empowers each one of us, he connects us together into this spiritual family where we experience the unity of Christ through the Holy Spirit. So we can never underestimate the Holy Spirit's role in binding us together. So we need to be eager to maintain this unity because if we don't maintain the unity, it's going to get lost. It's going to get um, affected. And so how do we do that? Well, notice what he says there at the end of verse 3. In the bond of peace. We strive for peace. We're peacemakers. That's just a catch-all word, peace. When you think about what Paul has already said, okay, number one, being humble. Number two, being gentle. Number three, being patience. If you're practicing those three things, you're striving for peace. And if you're practicing those three things and striving for peace, you're maintaining the unity as you rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Okay, what does that look like, Paul? Okay, he gives us four ways to do that. Number one, walk in humility. Number two, walk in gentleness. Number three, walk in patience. And number four, walk in unity. And then in verses four, five, and six, he gives a theological underpinning or a theological foundation that, that builds our unity, that, that supports our unity. And it's Trinitarian in nature. You'll see there the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's very interesting that the Holy Spirit's first. Normally in a Trinitarian formula, you have Father, Son, Spirit. But here, Paul reverses the order. He's got Spirit, Son, Father. Now, why does he do that? Is he just trying to be novel, trying to go out of order just to be kind of cute? No, I think what he's doing is he's, he's putting the Holy Spirit first because the Holy Spirit is the key person or the key agent who keeps us unified. And so I think that's why Paul starts there. Now, I want you to notice these aren't commands for us to do. These are theological declarations. These are things that, are, that Paul is just declaring theologically rooted in our identity in the Trinity as far as what this unity means, okay? And so they're grouped with the word one, okay? There's seven declarations that start with the word one. There's seven of them, and they're grouped within the Trinity. And the first grouping centers around the Holy Spirit. So let's just see what we find out here in verse four. There is one body, one body. Well, that's in reference to the church. There's one body. We are the unified body of Christ connected together. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, he put all things under his feet, Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is his body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. There's one body. Now, we don't create the body. We don't manufacture the unity. Christ has put us together as the body. And so the church is not only an organization, it's also a living organism where we are interconnected through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you really 
can't walk in a manner worthy of your calling as the church family without the power of the Holy Spirit. He's in us. He's empowering us. He's enabling us. He's enlivening us. He's energizing us. He is indispensable to our unity as a body. There's one body. Well, notice what else he says. There's one spirit. There's one spirit. Okay, there's not a multiple spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. Now, think about this for a moment. When, if there's only one Holy Spirit, and He's living in all of us, and there's, there's one Bible that the Holy Spirit is inspired that we're all reading, and we're all praying, then what should a church be doing in regards to unity? If there's one Spirit and we're all being led by the Spirit, then we should all be going in the same direction. We should all be being led by the Spirit. The problem is, is that oftentimes in church, instead of submitting to the Spirit or walking in the Spirit or being led by the Spirit, people want to be their own leaders. They want to vie for their own agendas. They want to express their own personal petty opinions. So a church that's unified is moving together forward in unison. And so one of the things as your pastor is I don't create the unity. I'm not up here to sell you some big vision of what we're supposed to do. What my goal is is to say this. We all have the Holy Spirit in us. We all have the written word of God. Our goal is to submit under the lordship of Christ, keep our eyes on Jesus, and if we're obeying his word, we're being led by the Spirit, then we should all be walking in the same direction. And we have to trust that God's not a God of confusion. There's one Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is going to lead us. There's going to be no conflict. There's going to be no disunity if we're all being led by the Holy Spirit. Okay, number three, there's one hope that belongs to your call. One hope. You know, when the world uses the term hope, I hope so. I'm not really sure. Cross my fingers, hope to die. We don't have that type of baseless, empty hope. As a matter of fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. Okay, so these first three units are all centered around the Holy Spirit. There's one body, the church. There's one spirit that's going to lead us. We're not going to have confusion. And there's one hope. The Holy Spirit gives us that living hope. Okay, in verse 5, we see the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son. And there's three declarations that Paul gives that surround Jesus the Son. Okay? Verse 5. One Lord. There is one Lord. Not only is there one Holy Spirit, but there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. We're not Lord. The government's not Lord. Some dictator's not Lord. Satan's not Lord. There is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. More than ever, we need to submit ourselves under the lordship of King Jesus. He is the senior pastor of our church. I've said it since I've been here, 15 years. I'm just an under-shepherd. Jesus is the senior pastor. Our job is to keep our eyes fixed upon him. (coughs) Excuse me. It's always dry here in the sanctuary. It's probably because it's sterile because there's nobody in here right now. It is clean, by the way. Fifth, fifth, there is one faith. One faith. Now, this is talking about the objective truth of the gospel, one faith, one, one body of, of, of a belief system. We all hold to the faith. A Jude, verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So there is the faith. There is one absolute body of truth in the scriptures that we call the faith that unites us all. All Christians everywhere are united by the faith. Now, unity is going to suffer if we're not on the same page doctrinally and theologically when it comes to the faith. I've said this many times over the years. Probably get sick of me talking about dogma, doctrines, and preferences, but this keeps us united as a church. Those three things are what keep us keep the unity in our church, if we all understand that. What are dogma? Dogma are those absolute essential truths that we have to believe. The hills we're going to die on, those, those absolute essential truths that are crucial to what it means to be a Christian. The Trinity, Jesus being born of a virgin, the sinless nature of Christ, that he is God in the flesh, that salvation is only through Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, justification by faith alone, the reality of heaven and hell, the literal second coming of Christ, the authority of the Bible, those things that are absolutely essential. And then we have doctrines. Doctrines are those things that we can agree to disagree upon. These are why we have different denominations, different groups that may interpret the scriptures in different ways. For example, baptism. Do you dunk under the water or do you sprinkle? Miraculous gifts and speaking in tongues. And and some people, you know, have different views on the charismatic gifts. End times views. Are you premillennial? Are you postmillennial? Are you are you mid-trib, post-trib? Are you all these different things? Women in leadership. Church polity, can you lose your salvation? Secondary issues. And then thirdly, there are preferences or differences. These are things you can't find a Bible verse on. They're just things that you prefer. I prefer to wear a mask in public. No, I don't wear masks. I'm not going to wear a mask in public. Or you say something like, you know what? This whole coronavirus thing's just been blown out of proportion. Other people may say, you know what, I'm really seriously concerned about this. This is a real virus, and I'm going to take precautions. You see, right now, in the life of our community, in the life of our country, even in the life of our church, we need to be very careful 
that we don't elevate preferences above doctrine and dogma. We need to leave freedom and people to use their conscience and their wisdom to have their opinions on secondary matters. The problem is, is when you begin to push for your differences or push for your preferences and you begin to elevate those and you begin to want the church to bend to your preferences when you say things like I like or I dislike or this and that the problem is is you're using the word like or dislike and so we need to be very careful that that we focus in on the essentials the faith sixth there's one baptism Now, there's some debate about this. I don't necessarily think here Paul's talking about water baptism where you're dunked under the water, although that's very, very important. I think what he's talking about is the spiritual baptism that we experience when we become a Christian, where the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ and we we spiritually died to our old life as a picture of baptism and we were raised to new life. Um, Galatians 3, 27 through 28, For many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, Therefore, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. I think it's the spiritual baptism he's talking about that unites us together as believers. But just as a side note, water baptism under the water immersion is crucial. It's very important. So let me just say this. I know we're supposed to practice social distancing and we haven't been in our building, but if you're watching this live stream right now and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, but you've never been baptized by immersion, Please message me. Please uh, text me. Please contact me. Contact the church office. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be baptized as a profession of faith to let the world know that you truly have believed in Jesus. So the first three are under the Spirit. The second three are under Jesus, the Lord, the Son. And then here's the seventh. Rounds out the Trinity. Verse 6. One God and Father of all, who's over all and through all. And in all, God the Father. And Paul's making this emphatic statement about the absolute sovereignty of God. 1 Corinthians 8, 5-6, For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, to whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy, and he gives us four ways, and he gives us this Trinitarian declaration that's essential to who we are in Christ. And one thing we need to remember, this is not my church. This is not your church. This is God's church. Sometimes unity can be disrupted when we begin to think that the church exists for me and my wants and my preferences, and if they don't do things the way I want them to, then I'm just going to get upset. Let me just say this. As we make plans to reenter and reopen, there's going to be a lot of differences of opinions. There's going to be people thinking we should do things differently. There's going to be a lot of opinions that we have. And we just need to remember to have an attitude of humility, gentleness, patience, striving for unity, being focused on the essentials under the lordship of Christ. And 
I praise the Lord that through this COVID-19 pandemic, we have been unified. He has been gracious. He has been kind. I'm overwhelmed by God's grace and mercy in the life of our church. But more than ever, this is the time where we need to get ready, be eager to maintain the unity. Because here's my prediction. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I'm just a pastor and a son of a pastor. It's not that the governor and the leaders don't want the churches to come back together in the buildings. The true enemy is Satan. Satan does not want this at all. And so he's going to try everything in his limited power to distract, distort, and disunify Emmanuel Baptist Church. There's going to be spiritual warfare, and we need to be prepared for that. Unity is fragile. We need to maintain it. We need to preserve it. We need to be prayerful. We need to seek peace because now more than ever, if God's going to do something big, if God's going to start a new thing, do you think Satan's going to want to sit on the sidelines and watch God show his power without some type of fight? Now, again, Satan's limited in what he can do, but spiritual warfare is real. So we need to maintain the unity. We need to protect it. We need to preserve it. And that means each of us individually need to take part in this process. So there's a question that you have to ask yourself today, and it's this. Here's the question for today, very personal question. Am I contributing to the unity of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Am I eager to maintain the unity of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Or, as opposed to that, am I seeking my personal preferences? Am I elevating preferences to the highest place? Am I, and maybe not even knowingly, am I walking in pride and am I walking in disunity? And so the question you've got to ask is, are you going to be a person that's going to promote and maintain and seek the unity of the church? Or are you going to be one that's going to dampen or, 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 sometime, or somehow uh, quench what the Spirit's doing in unity? So the call today is to pray for unity. Would you pray for unity? Would you pray that we would be a unified church? That we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In a Trinitarian manner, to the glory of God the Father, under the Lordship of Christ the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you make a firm commitment to not only pray for unity, but also be eager to maintain unity? the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace for the glory of God and the good of His church. Would you join me in doing that? I'm excited about what God's going to do through His people and Emmanuel Baptist Church. So let's pray together. Well, Father, I come before you today there is one God and Father who's sovereign over all, and we submit ourselves to you. Jesus, we come to you. You are the Lord. You are the author of our faith, and you have given us the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. 
And Holy Spirit, you are not an author of confusion, but you lead us and guide us and you live within us. And you unite us together as one body with one hope. And because these things are true in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, would we, by your power, walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Lord, for those that struggle with humility, would you crush pride in our lives? Lord, for those that struggle with gentleness, would you crush harshness and irritability and anger in their lives? Lord, for those who struggle with patience, would you crush impatience? Lord, for those who struggle with unity, would you give us all the grace to be peacemakers? Lord, we thank you for the work that you've done in our lives, and we're excited about the future. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.